I want you to think for a moment today. How blessed do you think that you are? How blessed do you think you are? I heard about a young boy who went to a grocer's shop or a local corner shop with his mother. And after the mother had gone round and collected everything that she needed, she took it all up to the till there. And the shop owner, who was a kindly gentleman, he looked down at the little boy and he passed him this large jar and tipped the lid off of sweets and said to the boy, why don't you put your hand in, you can take a handful of sweets. Well, the boy went and his face lit up and he went to put his hand over the top of the jar and then he held it for a moment and then he drew his hand back and the shop owner said, no, 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 go ahead, it's fine. Your mother won't need to pay for it. It's, it's on the house. It's free. And the boy put his hand out again and he held it there and then he pulled it back again. And so the shop owner took his hand and he put it in and he grabbed a whole load of sweets and he gave it to the boy. And when they were outside the shop, the boy's mother asked and said, why, why were you so shy in taking the sweets? They were offered to you and you could have helped yourself Why? Why didn't you do it? And the boy replied, because his hand is much bigger than mine. (laughs) There's a boy that will go far in this world. But when we think about blessing, when I asked you how blessed you are, really what we do is we compare ourselves to others, don't we? We can think about the world and we think about all the things that have gone on in the world this week. And we're here. We live in relative safety. And so we look at Afghanistan or Germany or France or, you know, the people that have been caught up in these terrorist things and these atrocities that have gone on and these killings that have happened. And we can say, you know what, we're really blessed to be here. We live in relative safety in this country. I was watching... uh, Uh, Ross Kemp did a documentary. He went back into uh, Syria with the the Kurds up to the front line. And he was interviewing some of the uh, the Kurdish people there. And one father went back into his village that the the Kurdish army has now taken back from uh, the so-called Islamic State. And they asked him, will you return to your home? And he said, there's nothing left of my home. There's nothing to come back to. The whole village, the whole town where he lived is just broken buildings. It's just like a, a, a building site full of rubble. He said, why, why will we come here? There's nothing here to come back to. And as I watched and as I looked at the state of you know, some of the things they're fighting for, you think, my goodness, how blessed we truly are. But then maybe on the other hand, we compare ourselves to others. Maybe our health is not as good as their health or our finances are not as good as their finances or maybe even our friendship network is not as large or, or as meaningful as we look at others and see, my goodness, they've got lots of friends and I'm often so lonely. Or maybe they have more opportunities than we do to do things and we become jealous or, or maybe even they're appreciated more than we're appreciated. We do lots of things but... Somehow they get the accolades and we don't get any. We compare ourselves 
How big is your hand that goes into the sweet jar? And we say, well, yes, I'm blessed, but maybe they're blessed slightly more. How blessed are we? Well, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians. We've started to look at the book of Ephesians together. Because it defines who we are. And we started to say we are, first of all, in Jesus Christ. Then we looked last week at we're being saints. We are the saints in Harrow. But he starts off in the book of Ephesians by describing, as he gets into the main part of the letter, about how blessed we truly are. Lord, as we read your word again today, we ask once more for your spirit to give us that understanding and that insight. You have promised, Holy Spirit of God, to teach us your truth. And so we ask again today that you will reveal your word to each one of us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul starts off by saying, you know what, as a church, as a people, you have been given every single spiritual blessing. God looks at the spiritual blessings under his disposal and he says, you know what, there aren't any more that I could give you. I'm giving you every single one, everything. Every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on to describe some of these spiritual blessings. Firstly, as we've already looked at, so we won't really look at it again, but we are in Christ. Means we are reconnected to God. In the Garden of Eden, what happened when they sinned? What happened when they decided to go their way instead of God's way? What did, what did God do? Ultimately, he kicked them out. He said, I'm sorry, but you can't stay here any longer. They were banished. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, he said, I'm going to have to put you out of the garden and I'm going to set my cherubim and my seraphim. I'm going to set a, a barrier between me and you so that you can't come back in. You're banished. You're gone. And yet, the reverse of that is true in Christ. In Jesus the vine and the branches in John 15. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you're going to be connected. You're going to be brought back into that intimacy that we see in the picture of the Garden of Eden. And we, just, we looked at that in greater detail, what it means to be in Christ. We are blessed because God has brought us back. God has undone what we did in the garden when we decided to go our way. When we decided to turn our back on God, he said, I'm going to give you a pathway to come back. But then let's carry on from verse 4. It says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He goes on to describe that we have been chosen. We looked at that about being saints. That before the creation of the world, God chose people, you and me, 
to be his saints. In other words, to be set apart for a particular role, for a purpose. God has given us a job to do. Jesus said, as you're going, make disciples. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do those. That is the job that I have given you to do. Now go on and do it. So it's like he looked before the creation of the world. He looked at this time, this place, and he said, these are the people I'm going to choose to be on my team to go and do my work. And we need to go on and go out and do that work for him. We're not sort of picked and, and there on the substitutes bench waiting to be called on. We're on the field playing the game. We're in there. Describes us in the Bible, doesn't it? As an army or a body and so on. So many different analogies. But we're in there because God has chosen us and said, I'm going to choose you to go and be my channels to others around. You're my ambassadors. You are the people that have that responsibility. doesn't make us any better or worse than anybody else. Just that he's given some people a role to play. And we need to go out and play that role. And he says, as part of that, I am going to predestine you. In other words, I'm going to adopt you as my children. I'm not just going to choose you and then send you out, but I'm going to bring you, you're going to become part of my family. You come onto my team. And so he says, like, I'm going to make you part of the family. You're all going to be co-workers, brothers and sisters together. That's why we call it brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of the same family through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians talks about that, 12 to 14. About the body in chapter 12, doesn't it? Many parts, one body, all doing different things, but working together with Christ as the head. And because we are part of that family, he says, you've got a future inheritance. We talked again about that last week. As we have an inheritance together, because just as the same way that my two sons have an inheritance, when myself and my wife die, they will inherit whatever's left probably debts or whatever it might be, but you know, they get whatever is left. It's their inheritance. And in the same way, we, the Bible describes us being co-heirs with Christ. We're all God's children, and so we have the inheritance that God wants to give us. Let's carry on. He also says that we are, in verse 4, He's chosen us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. We are blessed because we are described as holy and blameless in his sight. Holy means we've been set apart. It's another way of saying we've been chosen. These things here are holy. Why? Because they've been set apart for God's purposes. This chalice is not just like a normal cup, is it? When we... When we have a chalice like this, we ask God to set it apart for his purposes. You don't take this down the pub and say, I'd like you to fill this with beer, please. No, because it's holy. It doesn't mean to say that it's you know, sometimes somehow different, but it's been set apart for a special purpose. And so we treat it with reverence, we treat it with respect because it's been set apart for that purpose. And in the same way, God looks to you. He says, be holy as I am holy. 
Be set apart. Be different. Because I've chosen you to be different. I've made you special. And it goes back to that role that he wants us to play. And he says, I've made you blameless in my sight. Now, I don't know about you, but do you think of yourself as blameless? Do you think, my goodness, I'm seriously blameless. I've had a good day, you know. Then you get up, don't you? And you think, oh my goodness, it's starting to fall apart. But blameless is in his sight. So in God's eyes, as God looks at you, He says, I've already forgiven you. You're already clean. We come at the start of every service after our first hymn and we ask for forgiveness, don't we? Why? Because we know that in the last week we've done things that we shouldn't have done. And not only that, as we said this morning, it's also the things we should have done that we failed to do. I think that list is probably way bigger than the list of things. If I look back on the, on the last week, I think, actually, I'm, I haven't had a bad week. I haven't killed anybody or murdered anyone that I know of. You know, I haven't, haven't done anything too bad. I haven't lost my temper, I don't think, last week. I tried to be nice to people. And so I look at that kind of list and I think, actually, that bit's not too bad. But then I look at the bit that we also said. Let me just get those words. We said together these words. Through our own fault and in common with others, in thought, word and deed, and through what we have left undone. Think about all the opportunities God gave me in the last week, gave you in the last week. All the opportunities to to be set apart, to be different. All the opportunities you could have had to share the love of Jesus Christ with others. The opportunities you could have had to serve others if you had just taken those opportunities. I think that list is huge when I actually stopped to think about it. The opportunities I had to say something that I didn't say because I was in a hurry and I had too many things to do. The opportunities to serve someone in small ways that I didn't do because I was so focused on getting my own things done. That list is massive. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, even with all that massive list, God says, you know what? David, you're blameless. Why? Well, it's because of what Jesus Christ has done. God sees, it's like Christ is a filter through which God sees me. He says, yeah, I know you've messed up, but you're already forgiven. Yes, come and admit your guilt, but not because then you start with a clean slate every Sunday and then you go and sin again and so on. And then you have to wait till next Sunday to get it cleaned off when you come to church. Jesus said, when I died on the cross, I gave you back that relationship. You as being accepted because you're part of the family now. You have a right relationship with God. Sin messes us up, but it doesn't break that relationship like it did for Adam and Eve. Because Jesus has already repaired the relationship. Let's carry on. In love, he predestined us, verse 5, to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. It says we've been redeemed. We've been made free because of that forgiveness. We've been forgiven. God has already forgiven you. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's a number of different things we do when we do something wrong, isn't it? First thing we often try is denial. Don't look at me, it wasn't me that did it. I don't know who did do it, but don't look at me. No, I'm, I'm, I'm a saint. I wouldn't do those kind of things. Why are you looking at me? Or we go, you know what? It was Margaret. Margaret did it. I saw her do it. I saw it out of the corner of my eye. It was definitely Margaret. It's always Margaret. If you've got a brother, it was always your brother, wasn't it? It's always my older brother. He was always the one that was the troublemaker. Me, I was innocent. I was led astray. So you blame someone else, just like Adam blamed Eve. And Eve blamed the snake. You know, we blame and say, it's, it's not my fault. It was them, they did it. Or we make an excuse and we say, well, you know, the circumstances, it's not really my fault because I was put in a corner and I had no choice but to do that. You know, the sweets were there and the lid was off the jar. Don't blame me for doing that. It was this, You shouldn't have put it there in the first place and left the lid off. You know, I've told you about my friend in Canada. He used to work nights cleaning and he would come back three, four o'clock in the morning. His wife had baked this pumpkin pie and he thought, oh, that looks good. He was hungry. He was tired. So he thought, I'll have a slice. He knew he was in trouble the minute he had his first slice. So he thought, oh my goodness. Guilt started to play a part, you know. What am I going to do? She's going to kill me in the morning. She might want to give this pie away. I don't even know if it was for us. So he thought, I know what I'll do. So he ate the whole pie except for a few little bits. And then he scattered those little bits over the top of his cat. Thinking that he can get away with it that his wife would see the the mess around the cat and blame the cat. Let me just say, it didn't work. I think he's been forgiven just about, you know, but we do that. Don't, Don't blame me, it's the circumstances. I was tired, I was hungry. It's not really my fault. Or we hide it like he tried to do, we cover it over. It's the cat, you know... Don't look at me. It was, I, no, it was definitely not me. Until we get caught and then we have to admit it, don't we? We try and hide it and sometimes you lie and then you have to lie some more and lie some more and lie even more to try and cover over and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse until you come to that point where you go, you know what, I can't cover it up anymore. You see that on every police detective show on television, don't you? They all get in for questioning. No, it wasn't me. And they start lying until they bring out the evidence that, all right, I quit. It was me. Or you punish yourself when we do something wrong. How many of you do that? You say, you know what, I can't believe I did that. Why did I say those things? Why did I do that? And you kind of just beat yourself up over and over and over again. Going, yeah, I admit that I did it. I just don't know why I did it. That was so stupid of me. Why? And you keep beating yourself up. Or you can be forgiven. 
God says, I forgive you. Now forgive yourself. You know, all those other responses are negative and damaging to us. When you look at what they do in your lives, they just pull you down and they tear you apart. It's only when we come on our knees to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you know what, Lord, forgive me again. And he says, you know what, you've already been forgiven. You're free. I'm going to wipe it clean. Love the old blackboards, don't you? Used to love the blackboards where they came in, particularly if you had a like a, a wet wipe, you know, mark a uh, blackboard eraser, and it used to come up shining black, didn't it? And everything was made clean. You couldn't see what was on there before; it was just wiped away. Used to love looking at that, because that's what God does for you and me. He says, "You know what? I'm going to wipe it away. It's going to be clean, and it's gone." Don't you bring it up, because I'm going to clean it away from you. Don't you keep bringing it back. Don't you keep writing it back up there on that blackboard, because I'm going to wash it away from you. You're clean. You're free. Now move on. It's like that beautiful picture of Jesus, isn't it, with a woman caught in adultery. It says, "They don't. Who, who without sin, cast the first stone, and they all start dropping their stones." And he said, if they don't condemn you, neither do I. Now go, sin no more. New opportunity, new start. And it's one of the amazing blessings that God gives you and gives me. In him we have redemption through his blood, through what we will remember in a few moments. That's why it's so neat that we do this every week. Every week we're just brought back to remember the blessing of God in our lives. This is what he's done for you. He said, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to draw you back. I'm going to make you free. Free to be. I have come that you might have life and have it in all its abundance. Let's carry on. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. We have the riches of God's grace, it puts it down as in verse 7. And then he goes on to describe what that is. The aim of Christ is to bring, as it says in verse 10, everything in heaven and on earth under one head, Christ. He's going to bring everything together. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says, In the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That is the aim. That's the goal of Jesus Christ. That's what he's come to do. That's what he's accomplished. And grace, Jesus' presence here on earth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, has accomplished or begun the process by which that will be accomplished. It's like he started an unstoppable chain of events. It says that in verse 11. 
according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You cannot change the plan, the overall plan of God. Jesus will bring everything under, back under his control. And sometimes we need to remember that. When we get scared by what happens in our world, when we think about what's happened just in the last few weeks and the chaos in our world, everything in the big sense is going to come under one day under that rulership of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think it's all spiraling out of control and that God must have lost control somehow. But he said to his disciples here in John chapter 16, verse 33, he said, I have told you these things. This is about the work of the Holy Spirit. But he said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. So that when we believe, when we're connected to Christ, when we're in Christ, we still have peace even though we see the chaos around us. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Somehow, in some way, all this mess that we see around us, God is outside of that. He's bigger than that, so much bigger than that. And eventually the purposes of God, through all this chaos, everything will come under his leadership, under his headship once again. I don't know quite how that's all going to work out. But then as we look back, we didn't either, did we? When we looked at the Berlin Wall and we looked at the Iron Block and the Cuba crisis and all these things, when we looked at what was going on in Northern Ireland and we thought there's never going to be an end to this violence, when we looked at South Africa and we saw apartheid and we thought there's never going to be an end, you know, in the, the Iron Curtain and everything else, we thought there's never going to be an end to this. And yet you look back now and you say, you know what? I, I didn't see it at the time. But look how quickly the world changed. Do you remember seeing on the news when the Berlin Wall came down and the, and the difference and the people crossing over and families being brought together? Before that, they could just stand 500 meters apart and wave at one another in the distance. And suddenly families that had been separated for, for decades were reunited together and Germany was reunited as a nation. I don't know how... ISIS and the problems we see in, in the Middle East, in, in Asia and so on, and even in this country and in still going in the tensions in uh, Northern Ireland and, and all these different things that we see in the world. But I do know that somehow, in some way, God is still over it all and everything will come under his control. Nothing can thwart the plan of God, the ultimate plan of God. And the Bible says it over and over and over again. Most clearly in the book of Revelation. When it shows you what it's going to be like when everything is under his headship. But he says it. Jesus said it. The New Testament, the Old Testament writers keep saying it. You know, even in, in uh, where is it, in Jeremiah, isn't it? The people of Israel are cast off into, into a foreign land. They're under oppression. And Jeremiah writes the words of God, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you a future and give you a hope. And they were going like, what hope have we got? What future have we got? We're here. We're in a foreign country. We're not even in our own land. And yet God says, just remember, 
I'm bigger than all of this. That's the riches of God's grace. And lastly, he says this. He says, verse 11, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. He says, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, doesn't he? In other words, the Holy Spirit is a kind of a deposit guaranteeing our future. It's a living reminder to us, day in and day out, the Spirit living inside of us, of what we have been promised and what we're here to do. Back in John 15, he says, you know, You'll see it with the fruit that's being produced. Look out at our apple tree in the back garden. It's an old tree. You know, in winter it looks dead and you think, maybe I should cut it down. But spring comes and leaves start coming and the blossom starts coming. And this time of year you've got apples on it once more. It's a living reminder to me that, hey, I'm not dead. I just sleep for a bit every year. And then I come back into life again or I'm, the life of me shows out in its fruit. Don't cut me down. Trim me a few times. Look after me. But I'm still producing wonderful crops of apples. And it's the same with us. The Holy Spirit, it describes us. The Holy Spirit is that guarantee for us. And you see it when you see the fruits, when you see the Spirit working through you touching others. You have that guarantee of what you are in Christ Jesus. Do you see all these blessings that God gives us? He has given us every spiritual blessing. Think about that list that we've just gone through. How many of those could you accomplish on your own? Zero. None of them. It's all what God has done for us. And why? Why does he do that? Well, three times here in verse 6, in verse 12, and in verse 14, he says, to the praise of his glory. We couldn't do anything ourselves, but he's done it all for us so that we might praise him, that we might thank him, and keep on thanking him for all that he's done for us. Why do we come to worship? We come to thank Jesus Christ for all that he's done for us. We come to thank God for sending his son so that we might have these spiritual blessings in our lives. Why do we go out and serve him? We go out and serve him to thank him for everything that he's done in our lives. Why do we keep wanting to be the best that we can be for Christ? We do that to thank him for everything that he has done, every spiritual blessing that he has given to us. We could do nothing ourselves, but God in his generosity and his love has given us every spiritual blessing through Christ. Thomas Obadiah Chisholm was born in a log cabin in Franklin, Kentucky in 1866. He received his education in a little country schoolhouse. 
And at age 16, he began teaching in that same schoolhouse. He came to know Jesus when he was 27. And he had no college or seminary training, but he still went on and he was ordained as a Methodist minister at age 36. But he only was able to serve as a Methodist minister for a year because he contracted ill health and it made it impossible for him to continue serving. He moved to Vineland, New Jersey, and he opened an insurance office. He was always interested in poetry, and Chisholm wrote hundreds and hundreds of poems during his lifetime. And as he was reading the scriptures, he was reading Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. And as he was reading that, he heard the words from the hymn that we just sang, Great is thy faithfulness. He said... It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You know, he experienced throughout his life the faithfulness of God. He struggled with his ill health most of his adult life. He never really made any money. He just made enough to get by day after day, week after week. But he said, God has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care, which has filled me with astonishing gratefulness. And it was from that well of gratefulness, from the blessings that God had bestowed on this man, that he wrote those words that we sang. One of those great, great hymns, Great is Thy Faithfulness, O God, my Father. You know, we may go through struggles. We may be going through hard times now. But even in the deepest, darkest moments, when we focus on what Christ has done for us, we can say that we are truly, truly blessed. We could do nothing ourselves. But in Christ, we have everything. 